One of my favorite books was written by an English Puritan by the name of John Owen. The title of the book is called The Glory of Christ. Now, John Owen was not the easiest author to read. In fact, I think it was J.I. Packer who said of him that he writes like a large elephant walking through a small village. I don't even know what that means, but he's a difficult read. Some people suspect that he thought in Latin as he wrote in English. He was such a great Latin scholar. I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know enough Latin to know that. But he, in his final work called The Glory of Christ, he, he wrote it in his dying days. And in fact, it wasn't published until after he had died, posthumously. And in this book, his thesis, he draws from John 17. John 17, 24, which we looked at last week. In John 17, 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see the glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. And so he argues that if Jesus' desire is that we would be with him in eternity future, gazing upon his glory for all eternity, then this should be something of our aim here and now, to gaze upon the glory of Christ now. And then we will do it world without end forever and ever. I think it's a compelling argument. It's a compelling argument that we should adopt. And really, I think it's the end of Jesus' prayer here. Jesus expresses to the Father that his people would have the knowledge of God. And so this morning, I want us to think about four aspects of the knowledge of God so that we would move out in knowing God and in loving others. The first is what I call the rejection of the knowledge of God, or you may even call it the distinction of the knowledge of God. Notice Jesus' prayer here. as This is the tail end of his prayer. In verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, I have known you. And these have come to know that you sent me. Notice, first of all, how he addresses the Father. He calls God righteous Father. And as far as I know, this is the only time in the New Testament that the Father is addressed as righteous Father. Throughout this prayer, sometimes Jesus calls him Holy Father. Here he calls him righteous Father. And this may be significant as Jesus, over and over throughout this prayer, has alluded to this kind of covenant relationship with the Father to take the people who had been given to him by the Father and to die for that people. There's this kind of, uh, um, as the older writers called it, that Latin phrase, this pactum salutum, this eternal Trinitarian agreement to die for this specific people, the people whom the Father had given him. Either way, he, Jesus addresses the Father as righteous Father. But then he says here, 
the world has not known you. Remember, throughout this prayer, Jesus makes this distinction between his own and the world. The world as that system of unbelief that has captured all those who rest in unbelief, who are embracing all the worldly ideas, all the ideas that go against Christ and his word. He says, this world has not known you. Now, the world in Jesus' day, in many respects, consisted of religious people, the Pharisees, people enraptured in the Judaism of the day who rejected the Messiah. And Jesus, this, is, this, this by the way, is how the Gospel of John opens up, right? In that prologue, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, which is really the key to understanding the whole of the Gospel, John writes... He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. This is one of the great tragedies that Jesus came into this world as the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity. He came in the world, and he was the creator of the world. He was the the God uh, who was there at the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, saying, let there be light. He was the creator of the world, the maker of this world. He came into this world, and the world did not know him. What a tragedy. The world that does not know its maker. The world that does not know the creator. This is also highlighted in in John chapter 3. In the midst of that conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. It's kind of even hard to know whether Jesus is talking here or John the Apostle is writing, but either way, it says in John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, Jesus himself being the light. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Again, this is the great tragedy. Light has come into the world, the very incarnation of truth and righteousness. The God who is the creator came into this world and lived amongst men for 33 and a half years. And did humanity roll out the red carpet and say, welcome King Jesus? Did they say, oh, thank you? No, by and large, the world rejected him. Stuck him on a Roman cross. Rejected the knowledge of God that was revealed in Jesus. And so it is also today. The world rejecting the knowledge of God. The world that does not know Him. The world that is content to have Jesus as maybe some kind of uh, soft, effeminate, long-haired dude. But not the King of kings and Lord of lords. The world that's willing to embrace Him at arm's length as maybe a baby in a manger but not the one that they need to bear the burden of hell upon the cross for their sins. They know him not. This highlights 
the value of knowing God, does it not? You see, the vast majority of humanity rejects the knowledge of God that's found in Christ. And yet, there are some who do know Him. In fact, Jesus says, He knows Him. Right? In verse 25, yet I know Him. I have known you, He says. And these have known that you sent me. Talking specifically of those first 11 apostles. And then we also know that there are others who know through the testimony of the apostles as he laid out in verse 20 when Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for for those also who believe in me through their word. That would be you guys sitting here today. If you have a knowledge of God, this is a very precious commodity. Often the value of something is uh, related to the scarcity or abundance of that particular resource. It's the law of supply and demand. The more scarce it is, the more demand there is, the more valuable it is. I'm not sure if it's still true, but I remember some years ago learning that the De Beer family in South Africa runs the market on diamonds across the world. And even though they have access to many more diamond mines, they don't mine them. So it's to keep the cost, the demand for diamonds very high. And so it is with the knowledge of God. This is a precious commodity that so few know the true and living God. So if you're sitting here this morning and God has opened your eyes so that you know Him, you know the true and living God of the Scriptures, that is a precious thing not to be taken lightly. That is a grace gift from God. Thomas Manton who again preached 150 sermons on this passage in John 17. He said, saving knowledge is more excellent even than knowledge of Christ. When you compare the knowledge of God with all the different fields of knowledge in this world, you could study botany, you could study medicine, you could study all kinds of different fields, and those are wonderful things to study in God's created world. But the knowledge of God, this is indeed a high privilege that few have. Jeremiah of old, the prophet said, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. And again, aren't these the things that so much of humanity boasts in? Wisdom, knowledge. Wow. Look at his IQ. Wow. Look at all the letters after her name. Wow. Look how smart they are. Or strength. Wow. Look at the way he can dunk a basketball. Look at the way he can knock over a defensive back with his hand in a stiff arm. 
Look at his bench press. Or, wow, look how much money he has, she has. The prophet says, no. You want something to really turn your head over? They know God. The knowledge of God. And it's not that God is somehow concealing himself from humanity. That he's, he's a God who plays tricks. He plays hide and go seek. Where Come and find me. I'm not here. No. God speaks loud. He speaks so loud that the scripture says everybody hears him. Well, how so? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, his eternal power, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen through what has been made so that all of humanity is without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So the knowledge of God is spread far and wide through the creation. But humanity suppresses that knowledge of God suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The psalmist, David, says it like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the work of His hands. All you have to do is look at the leaves on the tree, look at the blades of grass, look at your own biology, and you see the wonder of God's handiwork, His design, His wisdom, His goodness, His power. But humanity says, no, we came from... The cosmic goo. We just poofed into existence. I mean, mean, we don't say that about anything. Do you say, wow, what wonders of how my smartphone just came into existence without engineering, without design, without a creator. It's utterly asinine. It's foolish. It's absurd. And yet humanity says the same thing as they look at the wonders of God's creation, which in so many ways are human inventions just try to echo the handiwork of God. F-15s are after birds. And of course the knowledge of God spread not only in general revelation, but through the gospel. Again, this is a tremendous privilege to have Bibles in hands, to be able to bend your head down and read what the Scripture says. And the knowledge of God is spread far and wide through the Bible, through the Scriptures that people, uh, you know, in, in many worlds, many countries can download Bible apps and have access to the Scriptures. Some of you young people growing up in Christian homes, you have the great privilege of tremendous light. There are places in this world where people live their whole life and although they have the knowledge of God and creation, 
They've never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they die and are buried in that state. But not you guys. You guys have many scriptures memorized, much light from your parents, much light from your pastors. Do not think that a light thing. The knowledge of God is rare, so you need to respond to it. So, we see the discrimination of the knowledge of God, but secondly, the mediation of the knowledge of God. Notice what Jesus says here in the second part of verse 25. While the world does not know him, Jesus says, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've made your name known to them and will make it known. Notice here we see that Jesus knows God the Father. He's known Him like forever. For all eternity, He's known Him. That there has been this eternal love relationship with with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. He knows the Father. And He is the mediator of of the knowledge of God. He has been assigned the specific task of revealing God. I mean, this is how the Gospel of John starts, right? In the beginning was the closed book. No. In the beginning was the dark wall. No. In the beginning were the dirty glasses. No. In the beginning was The Word. What is the Word? But it is the expression of the mind. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus' very identity from the beginning of the Gospel of John is telling us He is the one who expresses the knowledge of God. He is the one as God who is the very revelation of God. It comes up at the end of that introduction to the Gospel of John in 118 when it says no one has ever seen God but God, the only begotten or the one and only, has made Him known. This one who is in the bosom of the Father. This one who lies upon the chest of the Father and has an intimate love relationship with the Father for all eternity. He is the one who explains the Father. We see it come up in the conversation that Jesus has with Philip, right? In John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have, you been with, have I been with you so long And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is highlighting that he mediates the knowledge of God. He is that person within the Trinity whose job is to express the knowledge of God through his person through his life, through his sign miracles as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, through his death, 
and resurrection. So my friend, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. If you want to know the compassion of this great God, you look at Jesus. If you want to know his power over creation, being able to to rebuke the winds and the waves, you look at Jesus. If you want to know God's power over death, you look at him raising Lazarus from the dead. God wants us to know him and he sent the Lord Jesus to reveal him. And again, this is the fruit of this eternal relationship that Jesus has with the Father. I remember some decades ago when I entered into a dating relationship with the one who is now my wife and I was growing in my knowledge of her and growing in my love for her, I wanted to tell my parents about her. I wanted to tell others about her. And so it is with Christ as he's in this eternal love relationship with the Father. He wants to make him known. And so, dare I say, also with believers as well today, as you have entered into a knowledge of God, as you grow deeper and fuller in your love and knowledge of him, you want to make him known. This is who God is. The Bible often compares God's people's relationship with Him to the relationship between a husband and a wife. Yes, God gives different relationships. There's close friendships that one can have, but to be sure, the closest of human relationships is that covenant relationship between husband and wife. And that's what God likens His relationship with His people to. It is a tremendous relationship. Friend, do you know this great God? Have you entered into a loving relationship with Him? Do you know Him? When a man's love and affections are set upon a woman, he may communicate that in some way to her. Maybe it's passing a note (laughs) in high school. Maybe it's sending a message. Maybe it's a telephone call. Maybe it's a face-to-face communication, but there is an expression that I'm interested in you. And so it is with Jesus Christ as He sends messengers, as He is that expression of God as God. He sends messengers, messengers to tell of this great God who is This great God who wants to enter into a love relationship with sinners like us. He sends co-workers, relatives. He sends the scriptures 
And you read passages like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Romans 5.8, For God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you receive this message, He loves sinners? And the heart begins to melt But also there's an understanding that if we will receive honor and obey Him as Lord and husband, there must be a change in our relationship with other things. You can't get married to a woman who's married to another man. Christ will, have, Christ will not be a polygamist. Christ will have you for His own. So again, if you will enter into this love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as your heavenly groomsman, you need to turn away from other idolatries, other loves, If you will love, honor, and obey Him, if you will be fully devoted to Him, you must, what? Forsake all others. And so, friend, let me tell you about this great God who loves, this heavenly groomsman who would die upon the cross for sinners. If you want to enter into a relationship with Him, you must forsake your harlotries. You must forsake your rebellions and come to Him and be devoted to Him and say, Jesus, I trust in Your death and resurrection and I want to follow You with exclusive allegiance to You. And He will take you as His own. He's on bended knee this morning urging you to come to Him, to enter into a relationship with Him. Will you forsake? Will you thumb your ears at His proposal? If you do so, you do so to your own eternal destruction and damnation. And His proposals may not last forever. They will not last forever. Respond to his offer of a loving relationship now. So that's the mediation of this knowledge of God. We saw the distinction of this knowledge and now thirdly the progression of the knowledge of God. Notice again in verse 25, Jesus says, Yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known. Notice as Jesus is talking about his own, there is a kind of a progression in their knowledge of God that's mediated through Jesus giving them that knowledge. 
I have made it known, and I will make it known. Now, notice, what does he make known? His name. Now, name in Scripture often is synonymous with his character. Jesus is making the Father known and will make him known. Now, he's talking about those those initial disciples, but, but obviously there's great application for believers today as well. But let's start with those initial disciples. Those initial disciples, Jesus was making himself known. He, was, he had made himself known. When they, when they first met Jesus, there was, there was a making of the Father known to the disciples. As he called them to, to not be fishers of men, or to not be fishers of fish, but to be what? Fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. As he did miracles in front of them, as he taught them, he was revealing the knowledge of God to them. He had revealed the name of God. And something grand and climactic was about to happen where he was going to show more of God to them. Namely, what happens in chapters 18 and 19. The crucifixion, the resurrection. So that in, in the, the progress of God revealing himself, you know, you know the, I hope you understand this, the Bible is not like the Koran. The Koran was, was, was given at one point in time, supposedly. I mean, you know, supposedly Muhammad had these revelations from the angel Gabriel. Of course, we know that it must have been some demon or something. But, but it's all given at one time. The Bible is written over thousands of years, 40 plus authors over the course of thousands of years, and there is a progressive unfolding of the revelation of God. So that Abraham didn't know all that we know today on this side of the cross. There is a progress and unfolding that often there's there's acorns that become oak trees. There's sunflower seeds that become blossoming sunflowers. As you read through the scripture. And and so it is, even in the life of the disciples, as they were going to experience with their own eyes an unfolding of God and his character, how loving would God actually be? He would die on a Roman cross? How serious about sin is this great God? That he wouldn't wink at sins, but that his son would endure the pains of hell upon the cross on behalf of sinners? This is more revelation of God that takes place in the cross. And also then, of course, the ascension, and then Pentecost. And then the rest of the New Testament, we see an unfolding revelation of God, even insight and knowledge into the second coming of Christ, as we see from those sobering pages of Revelation 19, that he's coming on a, wet, on a white horse, treading the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, all this unfolding the character of God the Almighty. but also for the believer, right? While we live on this side of the completion of the canon of scriptures, in other words, there's not a 
Revelation part 2 or a fourth John. The canon of Scripture is closed. I do not believe God is continuing to give ongoing revelation. But nonetheless, even in each individual believer's life, there is a progress in the knowledge of God. That hopefully, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you know God more today than you did five years ago, 15 years ago. That there has been progress in knowing this God more like there is in any relationship. I'd like to think you know your best friend better today than you did when you first met them. That husbands and wives know each other better today than when they were first in that dating relationship. That fathers and sons know each other better today than the Goo Goo Gaga years. That there is an ever-deepening and increasing knowledge in that relationship and there is an ever with it a commensurate growing and deepening love. And this knowledge ought to be pursued. It ought to be pursued. Listen to Proverbs chapter 2. Solomon exhorts his son, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, if you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to knowledge, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. All those lang- that language, bending your ear, crying out, God, help me to know you more. Listening to Him more attently as you, as you read His Word. Seeking Him as for silver and gold. Silver and gold are making a comeback these days as that dollar is inflating like a balloon. If I told you that there's gold bars hidden in this building, searching for them, they're free if you can find them. You would search for them with great diligence. Again, how much more precious is the knowledge of God? The believer can open up Bible and, and, and I hope you understand this. The Bible is revelation. It is God revealing Himself. So you are never far from the intent of the author of Scripture when you ask yourself the question in any and every passage, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about who God is because all the contours of the revelation of God whether you're in the midst of the prophets calling down fire from heaven or you're in the midst of Hosea's relationship with Gomer or or whether you're in one of the gospels it is an unfolding of the contours and character of almighty God himself and you ought to be growing and progressing in that knowledge of him 
And if you think it can happen apart from going to the source, namely the scriptures, you are on very dangerous ground. I mean, that's what Joseph Smith was up to. That's what Muhammad was up to. Go back to the source. Go back to Scripture. The inspired 66 books of the Bible. I mean, there's enough of it there. Keep you busy. You could spend 10 lifetimes studying it and growing in your knowledge of God. This is what Paul prays for. Did you know that? I mean, there's not that many recorded prayers in the Scripture. There's a handful of them. But two of them came to mind in particular in thinking about this, one from Ephesians and one from Colossians. Listen to the prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. He opens up his letter praying a, a, a written down prayer. I want you to receive revelation from God. I want you to know God more. He does the same thing in Colossians. In Colossians 1, 9, and 10. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and then at the end of the prayer, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Jesus was intent on the disciples progressing in the knowledge of God. The apostles pray for it. Solomon urged it. God's whole scripture testifies to it that God loves to make himself known. So, friend, are you progressing in the knowledge of God? Second Corinthians 3.18 It says, We all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul says, as we gaze upon the Lord, the Lord Jesus, we become transformed ever increasingly into the image of Jesus. And this comes from the Spirit of God who does that transformative work. And dare I say, what better way to gaze upon the Lord Jesus and to be increasingly conformed to His image then going back to the great story of the Bible. Because from Genesis to Revelation, it's the unfolding of Jesus revealing God to us. I mean, even when the Bible's not talking about Jesus, it's talking about Jesus. Been reading recently, First and Second Kings. You see King Ahab. King Azariah, 
both of them thumbing their nose up at the revelation of God. Ahab receives this, remember that story with Micaiah? Micaiah is the only prophet of Yahweh and Ahab's willing to listen to all these prophets of Baal, all these false prophets, and he rejects the revelation of God that Micaiah is giving. Same thing with Azariah in 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah says, you're, you're going to die. And he says, oh, really? And he sends 50 soldiers and a general after Elijah. Both of them rejecting the knowledge of God, rejecting the revelation. But well, how on earth does that teach me about Jesus? Well, both of them were kings that were told that they would surely die. Just like Adam of old for rejecting the revelation of God. And all that sets up the storyline of the scripture of the second Adam, the new Adam, the Lord Jesus, who receives the revelation of God and is that perfect king to be that perfect representative of his people. And so from Genesis to Revelation, again, even when it's not talking about Jesus, it's talking about Jesus. Because that's the storyline, that's the whole story. That's how it all fits together. And you have to, in order to understand any of the bits and pieces in the story, you have to understand the whole of the story. Thomas Watson said, the scripture is the very library of the Holy Ghost. The scripture is the very library of the Holy Ghost. And so my Christian friend this morning, again, are you progressing in the knowledge of God? And friend, I get it. We have a bazillion distractions all around us. And you need to work hard to see who God is in the Scripture. It will not happen on accident. Kids screaming all around you. Smart devices buzzing and beeping everywhere. Laundry tasks to tend to. Mouths to feed. A job to go to and clock in and clock out. But what is most precious? It's the knowledge of God. To grow in your knowledge of Him. Well, we must press forward. We saw the discrimination of this knowledge. Not The world does not know Him, but some do know Him. We saw the mediation of this knowledge. This knowledge comes through Jesus. He is the one who makes the Father known. The, the uh, uh, progression of this knowledge, he, uh, Jesus was unfolding the, the name of God to His disciples and, and ever increasingly we grow in the knowledge of God as we seek Him in the Scriptures. And now fourthly and lastly, the imitation of the knowledge of God. Notice the so that at the end of verse 26. This tells us the purpose, the aim. So that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the so that, that, that the love with which you love me. What, again, he's talking to the Father. 
He's highlighting this eternal love relationship that existed between Father and Son and the Holy Spirit as that emanation of love that went back and forth between Father and Son for all eternity, this eternal love relationship. Jesus says, I want that love, that love that exists between you and me to be in them. I want them to know and experience that, dare I say, intra-Trinitarian love. And that that love would then be spilled out towards others. This isn't anything new in the Gospel of John. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. And that's the same language that, that Jesus uses earlier on in John 14, where in my Father's house are many abodes, many dwelling places. In other words, I have a house for you, but you know what? We're going to come stay with you before you come to my house, my Father's house. This abode that the Father and the Son would dwell with the people of God. And obviously God does this by His Spirit, And so, friends, this helps us to understand that Christian people are distinctively a Trinitarian people. Joel Beakey says the gospel is inherently Trinitarian. Hence, the even, hence evangelical spirituality hinges on the Trinity. The Trinity, not the doctrine. Although the doctrine of the Trinity is important, I'll add. But on the Trinity, the triune God Himself is the life and joy of God's people. So that as we're growing in the knowledge of God and deepening in our relationship with God, we see God as Trinitarian, is in this eternal love relationship. Augustine, the early church writer, said, The true objects of enjoyment then are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are at the same time Trinity, one being, supreme above all, and common to all who enjoy Him. Thomas Goodwin, the English Puritan, said, Sometimes a man's communion and converses with one, sometimes with another, sometimes with the Father, then with the Son, and then with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the heart is drawn out to consider the Father's love and choosing, then the love of Christ in redeeming, and again the love of the Holy Spirit that searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us and takes all the pains with us. And so a man goes from one witness to another distinctively. We should never be satisfied till all three persons lie level in us and all make their abode with us and we sit as it were in the midst of them while they all manifest their love unto us. And friend, isn't that your experience? Sometimes you know you're, you're in the midst of prayer and, and you're praying to the Father and then you realize you're praying to the Son and then you realize you're praying to the Spirit. Each of them, their wondrous uniqueness I mean, there, are, there is one God, but there are three distinct persons. 
The Holy Spirit did not clothe himself in humanity and die on the cross. The Father did not clothe himself in humanity and die upon the cross. The Bible never speaks of the Holy Spirit choosing a people from before the foundation of the world. There is uniqueness in the economy of the Trinity. In fact, I mentioned John Owen at the beginning. I'll give another book plug. He wrote Communion with God. And in it, his thesis is that we as God's people in prayer should commune with each person of the Godhead. Thomas Manton says the feeling of love is to be improved immediately to thankfulness. And the fruits of this love are to be improved by spiritual discourse to confidence. And as we press into that knowledge of God and we realize that we are loved with the same love that the Father has loved the Son because we are now united to Jesus and He dwells with us by His Spirit then you will be motivated to imitate Him in that kind of Trinitarian love. As you press into the love of God, and this is just, it, it, in many ways, this works even in the natural world. When you love and adore somebody or something, you tend to imitate that thing. Years ago, on a planet far, far away, I used to be in the left-handed batter's box, and my hero at the time was Jim Tomey. I used to love to watch Jim Tomey hit that baseball long way. And so, when I played, I imitated Tomey in the batter's box. When you press into that love and knowledge and adoration of the true and living God, You'll say, I want to love like him. I mean, this is how this discourse begins, this uh, John 13 through 17, right? It opens up with Jesus on his knees washing the feet of the disciples and him saying, now that you've seen me do this, do it to one another. At the end of that same chapter in John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another even as I have loved you that you would love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. In other words, that washing of the feet of the disciples was a picture of the washing Jesus would do washing his disciples in his blood. It was a picture of his cross work. It was a picture of Trinitarian love. And Jesus says, as I love you, so love one another. And so friends, this is where it moves us and leads us to move out in love towards others that all of our learning and pressing into the knowledge of God should not make us a proud, arrogant people who become more and more isolated. It should humble us, fill our hearts with thankfulness, move us out towards others in loving, humble service of others. It should bring about a kind of 
holy self-forgetfulness of ourselves and our own problems and want us to pour out and love towards others. Friend, are you growing in your love towards others? Are you moving out in love towards others? thinking about last week as September 11th was upon us about that awful dreadful day several decades ago when those planes flew into those twin towers and how the phone lines were all jammed up you remember that couldn't call anybody Why? Because everybody was trying to get a hold of their loved one to express love to them, to make sure they're okay, to tell them, I love you. Well, should that not be our regular practice as we don't know when our days will end? With a kind of urgency to express love towards others, to serve others in love, to not wait until it's the right time, but to forget about ourselves and move out in love. Let me close with the story of a Wycliffe Bible translator by the name of Doug Meelan. His wife and him moved to a village of Brazil's Fulnio Indians, And as he entered into this village and began to get to know the people as is often the custom, they referred to him as the white man. That's the white man. Now this was not really complimentary because there sadly and tragically had been a history of white men exploiting these Indians, burning down their homes, robbing them of their lands, cheating them. But the Melans were resolved to extend love to this people. He began to practice medicine, helping them, began to try to get to know the people. Pretty soon, the people called him the respectable white man. (laughs) And then the Melans began adopting the customs of the people. And the Fulnio tribe began giving them greater acceptance. And then they began to speak of Doug and his wife as the white Indian. And then one day Doug was washing the dirty, blood-caked, infected foot of an injured Fulnio boy. And he heard a bystander close by say, Who ever heard of a white man washing an Indian's foot before? Certainly this man is from God. And from that day on, Doug and his wife would go into an Indian home and people would say, here is a man sent from God. You see, friends, as we press into that knowledge of God and grow in understanding God's love towards us, we will emanate that love towards others 
a kind of Trinitarian love. Let's pray.